Alright guys, let's get started. We're doing pretty good here on time. Um, what we're going to do first is we're just going to do a little recap. Let's just do a little recap over what we covered last week. I'll try to make it quick so we can get to some new text. Uh, but what we began last week was a eight-week survey over the book of James. We're going to try to cover the entire book of James in a matter of an eight-week span. And so last week, we began with an intro to the book. And in the intro, we talked about the canonicity of the book of James, that whether it should be included in the canon, which means whether the book of James should be included in our Bible or not. We talked about some of the historical debates that came out of the question over whether James should be part of the Bible. I quoted Luther. A lot of people are familiar with Luther's low view of James in that he called it a strawy epistle because of some of the things that it teaches in uh, the second chapter about justification. Luther saw them as being less than the doctrines of grace, and so he questioned them. Um, I quoted then, just to offset Luther's view of the book of James, I quoted Calvin, where Calvin said that although some people have had problems with the book of James, he said that he would easily explain the difficult passage in chapter 2 when he got to it in his exposition. And so, um, we began to look at the book of James for ourselves to see what about this book of James has, has, has convinced the church that it's inspired of God. And some of the things that we looked at was its date, its very early date. We dated it to the mid-40s. And, and most commentators say that, that the book of James is probably the first book written of the New Testament. That's how early that it is. Because uh, normally in the canonization process, to, it has to be a first century document in order to be part of the New Testament. Because if it was later than that, it wouldn't have been written by either an, an eyewitness or an apostle. It would have been too, too late after Jesus' ascension. We looked at the author. We determined that the author was James, Jesus' half-brother, the brother that Jesus grew up with and um, became a believer probably at the resurrection. He became a believer and then actually became a martyr. And we read the martyr account of James last week. So we know that the book is, 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 is inspired of God and it was meant to be in the canon for three reasons. I just mentioned two. It's very early date. It's author, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became a leader in the early church. And, and now we're going to get into more of the third reason that we know that this book is inspired of God. And that's because of the, the letter's actual content. As we study, the, as we study the, the epistle of James, we're going to see the God-given authority. We're going to see that it's inspired of the Holy Spirit by its teaching and what it says. And so those are the three things, and we're just going to continue on with this third um, factor of its canonicity is that the actual letter just breathes the Holy Spirit to us. We, we will amen the teachings of James. And so last week we started off um, with the first few verses, which gave us the first imperative. We got the first command from James last week. And that command was to have joy in your trials. And we talked about how hard, how difficult that is to do. 
And I think we were all ready to admit how often we fail at the very first command of this book, which is to have joy in our trials. Um, we, we went on because that James tells us why we get trials. And the reason that we get them is because God is doing a work through them. There's a purpose for our trials. And that's to, to cause us to persevere. That's to cause us to have endurance so that our faith will be perfected. Because the point of trials is to be like Christ and to be Christ-like. So now we're going to go on in the text. Now we're going to move on to verse 5. And we're going to see that God doesn't only bring trials in our lives, but He also provides in His grace the means to get through the trial. God in His grace provides us the means to get through these trials. So let's read James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, If any, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So God knowing that the trials that we're going to go through are not always easy, it's not always self-evident as to what our reaction should be or how, how we should handle trials. There can also oftentimes be many different paths we can go down in reactions to trials. But God in, His, God in His grace tells us, I will give you wisdom in that time. He says He'll give us wisdom. So I think this is a great promise. A great new covenant promise is that God will give us wisdom in our trials. And I think that, it, that we need to be very careful about what kind of wisdom this is and, and be specific about what kind of wisdom that we can expect from God. Because I don't think it's um, a philosophical wisdom. I don't think it's necessarily a wisdom that will guarantee that when we go through this trial, that we'll come out on top or that we'll, that we'll make it through unscathed or, or that it'll be easy. He's not necessarily going to always give us an easy way out. That's not the type of wisdom he's talking about, but a biblical wisdom, the wisdom that's spoken of in the, in the Proverbs over and over, is a godly wisdom. So when you're in a trial and you're praying to God for wisdom, you should expect this kind of wisdom, a godly wisdom, a wisdom that can see, as we just read through in the first couple of verses, a wisdom that will help us to understand the purpose of the trial. Right? That's going to be a huge part of the wisdom that, that, that you should want to, to get from God in trials is to understand why God's giving you that trial in the first place. Right? That's going to keep you from questioning God. That's going to keep you from asking the why question all the time. So you want to be very grounded. You want to be very wise. You want to remember the scriptures like we've already studied that says God's bringing these things to test your faith, to perfect your faith. And so you'll have joy. You'll be wise enough to have joy in a trial, which is not worldly wisdom. Right? And so he's going to give you the ability to understand the purpose of the trial. Then he's also going to give you the wisdom to discern his will in that trial. And I don't think we should always, like I said, be expecting the, 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 the correct path or the godly path to be the easiest path. But he promises right here in this verse to give you the wisdom to know what is the, the God-glorifying path to take. And so because wisdom, biblical wisdom, and the wisdom here that James promises that God will give to us in trials is to understand the trial from God's perspective and how to deal with it in a way that honors God. And I mentioned, I think, that 
as much time as I'd like to stay here just to press on our minds the importance and just how great that this promise is. Because I think a lot of struggle in the Christian life is not knowing what to do. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I spend my time doing this? Should I, spend, should I go here? Should I go there? Um, so in these trials, the promise of God to, to give you wisdom in those decisions is something that we should, we should take hold of as much as possible. The promise that God will give us wisdom in these situations is something we should, we should implement as much as, pro- as possible. And, and the more I thought about this, I mean, I, I've never gone to this text. This text, text has never come to my mind. But now that I've studied it, I, I want this to be, this, to me, this is going to be one of the great promises of Scripture, the promise of godly wisdom in trials. And I put this along. I'm just going to give you my list. This is some of the great New Covenant promises um, that I'm putting this right along with. In Luke 11, God promised, and these are just something else I hope that you guys would also just just have in the back of your minds is these are promises from God. God promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Right? That's what he says. He's talking about the even the good fathers give good gifts to your children. Right? Our good God will give us the Holy Spirit if we ask. I mean, it's hard to top that. Um, it's the promise of God himself. Right? So these, these are big. These are big promises that we, that we need to go to. Another great promise I just wanted to mention is God's promise to give peace. Philippians 4, 6. Right? The cure for anxiousness. Which could, could go hand in hand with, um, with trials. But God gives us these promises to give us wisdom, to give us His Spirit, and to give us peace. And so I think that we need to have, especially with what we're dealing with here, wisdom, we need to have a appreciation for wisdom uh, because the Proverbs over and over and over speak of the fool is the one who discounts wisdom. It's a foolish thing not to seek wisdom, especially when God is saying he's going to give it. And so we would be in error not to, not to take God up on this promise. Right? This is Proverbs 16, 16. I'm just going to read it to us. It says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Right, that's that's a biblical view of the greatness of, of wisdom, is that it's better than gold. A lot of times, I think we naturally tend to lean towards, man, if I just had some money, it would take care of this problem. Man, this bill right here, if I just had some money, it would take care of this problem. But the wisdom of God is what we should seek. God may want us to suffer through some financial problems. In His grace, He may want us to do that. So. I, I, I've reiterated the point that we need, to, we need to take a hold of this scripture. We need to take a hold of this promise to get wisdom from God. How much better off would we all be if we had the wisdom from God that he promises? Mm-hmm. So I want to point out in the text, what is the means by which we gain this from God? Anybody, what, what does the text say? How do we get this from God? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Right? I think it's speaking of prayer. So we must be a praying people in times of trials. Right? We're to pray and to ask God. That's the means. So immediately when the trial comes, our first, our first inclination shouldn't be to have a worldly wisdom or just how to come out on top or just get out of it. But we should, by prayer, ask God for wisdom. And we have the promise that He will, that he will give us wisdom. 
Okay, so now the text is going to take, take this one step further as, as it's going to give us more detail into how we are to pray, right? So we, we'll know we need wisdom when this trial comes and you feel overwhelmed and you start getting anxious. You'll know, you should know that you need wisdom from God. Now the text is going to tell us specifically how to get that in our prayer from God. Verse 6, it says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And so the description is given of somebody who's somebody who's basically out in the middle of the ocean, out in the middle of the sea, and that they're just being taken around. They're just being taken around by their doubt. Taken around, the description is like the wind and the waves. And out in the middle of the ocean, there's no, there's no sense to it. You're just going this way and then that way. And so the description is given to, to show that what is the chances of when you go to God with a doubting prayer that you're going to reach your destination? If you're out in the middle of the ocean with no, with, no, with no rudder, with no power, with no engine, with no sail, you're just, you just find yourself out there and you're just hoping that the waves are going to... What's the chances that you're going to reach your destination? You're nothing but a hopeless doubter at that point. And so... The key to unlocking the great promise here of wisdom from God is faith. The key is faith. Because God's not honored when we he's not honored by our lack of faith. He's not honored by our lack of trust in him. The whole reason he sets it up like this is so that we will trust in him. So that we will not trust in ourselves, we will not trust in our circumstances, our money. He wants to be glorified. He wants to be honored. And it's an honor to go to God and ask Him for help. He's honored by that. And so I just think, how is it that we can doubt our great God? Because this is a, this is a phenomenon. The phenomenon of unbelief. I mean, I see it in my own life. It's amazing. It, it blows my mind that I doubt. Right? I mean, we have our scriptures. We have, we've seen everything that God's done for His, for his people since the very beginning of time. Right? There's no doubt. There's no doubt in, in God's faithfulness. Because we see him just time and time again taking care of his people. And yet somehow we, we doubt. It, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that we doubt. We doubt the God of all creation. We doubt the Lord who brought his children out of slavery from Egypt. We doubt the Savior who took on flesh to redeem us. So this is a great sin to doubt this God. We should be terrified of unbelief. John. Yes. Question. Yes, sir. Um, this is for everybody. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it one of the reasons that we doubt because we've never seen God part the Red Sea? We've never... We, we read it and we understand it and I believe what I read, but God has not done something like that in my life. And I tend to discount Mm-hmm. The great things that God has done in my life is not on the same level. Does anybody else go through that? Because I know I go through it all the time. Right, because we haven't seen a miracle. Yeah. Or yeah. We forget. Mm-hmm. We forget. I think that's what I've been learning about eternally. The praises of things that the Lord has done in our lives. And I, I think it's just forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you mentioned journaling, and I mean, I've been hearing that a lot lately. It seems like it keeps coming up over and over, the benefits of journaling, right, so that we don't forget, right? So that, that would be something good. And then when I sin, when I repent, I can go back to it mm -hmm. and learn from that too. So mm -hmm. I forget what I struggle with. Keep that in prayer. Mm -hmm. and cry and mourn and just keep begging God to help me in that area. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know we don't have the excuse, right, for not seeing a miracle, you know. I mean, Jesus constantly helped people, basically, have you not read? And that was enough. Yeah. You know, so I know we don't have the excuse, but yeah, we feel it, you know, like, we haven't seen the resurrected Lord like James has, right? And before he saw him, what was he, an unbeliever? <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, those, those experiences and those, those things you would think would, would naturally bring a, a great faith, right? But like Luke 16 says, you know, he says, send Lazarus to my family, right? And what it, Abraham tells him, hey, he's got Moses in the, in the prophets, even if somebody rises from the dead, he won't believe. So, I mean, it's just another situation where we're we're left with God's word, you know, which which is enough. But we question ourselves: Why isn't it to us? Why are we? Why do we not? Why is our faith not enough when we read the scriptures? But. Yeah, I mean, he's going to give an example later on in the scriptures of an effectual prayer, right? Elijah's effectual prayer. I'm sure that a lot of those prayers seem to happen immediately. You know, God, shut up the shut up the rain. We need it for the drought. Bring the rain back. Okay. I mean, so God, we have to be faithful through the answered prayer and the, the unanswered prayer. You know, we must be faithful. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think James, what, what does James say? I think it's, he's got a good answer. And uh, if you look in James chapter 4 real quick, he says, um, right, he says in James chapter 4, ver, the end of verse 3, um, the end of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Right, kind of like just, he keeps talking about, basically he's repeating the, sermons of Jesus all the time. He's referring to Jesus' sermons. You, have, you, you do not have because you do not ask, but then look what he says in verse 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you could spend it on your pleasures. Right? So he kind of reveals to us maybe one reason that it doesn't get answered sometimes. You know, it's not according to the will of God. It's for our own selfish desires, even though we don't think it is. Hey God, you know, I know it would really help you out if you took care of this bill for me. I know that would glorify you, God. I wouldn't struggle and, you know, but it, it may be for, you, for your own selfish desire, so. Hey, Chris, I was just going to ask. Yes, sir. Don't you think it also important when someone talks about faith is that they 
versus trust and so forth. I think if someone's wrestling, let's say, with are they doubting or are they being faithful because the word of God says, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God. Mm-hmm. And then without trying to define faith themselves, so we have a definition of faith in Hebrews 11, 1, mm-hmm. that they continually reflect on that, the definition that God gives. Mm-hmm. They can see that the latter part of it says that it's actually evidence not seen. Mm-hmm. And we wow. shouldn't be relying on all, all of our senses, you know, see, smell, and all that. But we actually have evidence that doesn't have to be seen. Because mm-hmm. that's the definition of faith. Yeah, trusting even though you haven't the seen evidence of things unseen yeah that's a good text yeah that is by definition uh, of what faith is is believing even though we haven't seen you know so we're called to faith we're called to trust in our great god even though we haven't seen that's a good text yeah that's i mean that was actually the text well i think that i'm yeah. just thinking in terms of when people like how they define this is faith always a sentiment let's say a pope Let's say I hope the Cowboys win, but I have no faith that they're going to win because mm-hmm. they have no evidence. <laughs> right? And so that, but I see because right. people say, oh, I have faith this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's no promise from God. And so I think they confuse hope mm. with actual, the definition of faith. Mm. I think you mentioned something else too that just brought to memory. Something that I had read, I think it was in uh, Douglas Moo's commentary, but I think you, you just made a really good point in there is that you said, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Jesus says, like, anything you ask, you know, will be given, right? But he makes the point of, that's, that's not such a carte blanche anything. Right. It's, what, it's what you mentioned in there. You said it's, it's things that God would have promised his people, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't promise us just anything, you know. But I would say, like, for instance, here's a, here's a good example, wisdom. If you ask God for wisdom and you, and you have faith and you don't doubt, you, you are guaranteed. You know what I mean? But... Mm-hmm. It's not. He, he wouldn't be saying, you know, if right, I need a blank check for this or that, you know, that's not a promise of God, right? That that he would be included in that, and so that was helpful for me because yeah, that's an issue you got to work through is where is the line? What can I ask God for, right? We're probably at liberty to ask God for anything if our motive is right, but He doesn't promise to answer everything, right? So that that that's that's very good, very good. Okay, let's go on in the text. Let's look at verse 7. It says, The doubting man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So again, we're seeing the importance of faith, which is the opposite of doubting, which is, as this text says, when it says double-minded, you know, all the commentators point out that it's literally a two-souled man. A, a, a two-souled man, one with a believing soul and one with a, an unbelieving soul, right? Which, which is really impossible. I mean, this man is just, it says unstable in all his ways. I mean, you're going to be all over the place if you half believe the promises of God and half don't. I mean, that's, you, you are literally out in the middle of the ocean with, with no direction, right? So, the importance of faith. We will not receive anything from the Lord without it. That's how important it is. That's how significant our, our faith and our prayers is. Because, because, look, you can do all the struggling in the world to set aside that prayer time, the, the, the difficult task of getting away from distractions, right? 
And all of that work, all of that prayer is going to be in vain if it's not with faith. So I think, I think, I almost want to say working up in our minds a faith in, in God and a faith in his promises and a faith in his word as we're getting ready to, pr- to pray would be very appropriate. Just to make sure that we are approaching the throne of God as we should by faith. Right? That needs to be part of our prayers so that they're not in vain. Because there's nothing worse than doing things in vain. Especially serving the Lord. Because we're going to... I know that we're going to get up there on that day and so many good works that we, you know, had spent so much time and so much effort in burned right up. No eternal value. And so as hard as prayer is, I mean, I would say it's one of the hardest things to do. You know? Especially the prayer that the Bible speaks of where you're going off by yourself and nobody's seeing it. Nobody knows that you're doing it. Just God. Nobody's going to appreciate how spiritual you are. They don't know that you're praying. But God knows. And so, so to even have that hard work burned up on that day was, would be vanity. Would be a waste of time. And so I try to emphasize, right, there is an object to our faith, right? We're praying to the Lord. We're praying to God. So I think I want to take just a very small excursus here in the text because I think it's helpful. I, I, I love, I love when, when these things are pointed out to me. The object of our faith is important, right? And so in order to boost our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to look at something real quick right here. We've already, we've already gone through this in the, in the verses that we've looked at. But look. Notice James' use of the title Lord, right? Because we're praying to the Lord. And it says, let's look at his title that, that, that he's used. Who is the Lord in verse 1? Who does James use the title Lord for? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so in, in verse 5, the verse that we just looked at, who is it that we're supposed to ask for wisdom? What title? God. That's right. Okay? So after asking God for wisdom, who is it that grants, the, that, that grants this request? Well, n- let me be specific. In verse 7, who is it that, 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 that either grants or rejects the request for wisdom? The Lord. Right. So, I just want to point out to us Basically, how easily James interchanges this title of Lord for Jesus Christ and for God, right? He's saying Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? We talked about James's high view of Jesus Christ already. He called him the Lord of glory in chapter 2. Um, but look, he, he says that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He says, ask God for wisdom, but if you don't ask in faith, faith the Lord will not give you anything, right? So, for me... To James, this person who, who grew up with, with Jesus, and, and to him, Jesus Christ was just his brother, the brother that never seemed to get in trouble, the brother he probably <laughs> the brother he was probably really, you know, annoyed with. That brother to James is now the Lord, as in his God. And so it should be with us as well, right? Because the scriptures teach the deity of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray. I mean, we pray to God the Father through the Son, right? We're not praying to a mere man here. 
So yeah, our requests are either answered or denied by the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's move on. Let's move on in the text. And, and what, James has been, what James has been teaching us is to maintain a faithful, non-doubting focus on God. Right? That's been his point. Through trials um, and seeking wisdom, we must have a, a faithful, non-doubting focus on God. And now, James is going to bring us into a couple of circumstances that one might find himself in which it might be very difficult to maintain this, this faithful, non-doubting focus on God. And so let's start in verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. It says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And so first, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, it says. And so I think, I think pretty clearly the humble circumstances would be speaking of a, um, a poverty, a brother without much money. And he is a brother, it says. This brother in poverty is not to grumble or complain or question the graciousness of God, but the text says he's to glory in his high position. In the high position that, that, a, that a poor brother, that a poor Christian has, is the high position that, that everybody has in Christ, is that he is an adopted son of the sovereign Lord. Amen. He is a member of the Most Highest family, which, which, which includes all the blessings that comes with being a member of God's family. This is the high position, despite his, his earthly standing, despite the fact that people don't um, respect him or pay him mind, according to earthly standards, he, is, he has the highest standing that a human being could have, is to be a member of God's family. And so this is, this is what he should, he should glory in, it says. And so look, look, you might just have to flip a page. Yeah, you probably have to flip a page, but look what James is going to say in, in chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Right? So the same thing. It's nothing strange for a poor man in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom of God. So even the poor man, we should not find our pride and our, our, our sources of rejoicing in our earthly standings which is very easy to do because, I mean, James has been talking about trials. This is going right along with trials, things that are very hard to do, things that can lead to temptation, that can lead to sin. So this is a difficult thing. That's why he's explaining it, right? It's very easy to find our, our pride and our standing in, in, our, in, in earthly things, in our clothes, in our money, in our cars, right? These types of things. So... The reasons, the, the reasons given here, he's going to explain to us why that is vain, why that is wrong. He, and he's going to explain it in verse 10 and following. So let's read it. Verse 10, it says, The rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And so, so James is painting the picture of this, this rich man who stands out among the other flowering grasses, or the other grasses, as somebody that, that, that is seen as beautiful, right? That people, when they walk by this field, would say, wow, look at that. Look at that, that piece of grass. That's nice. Man, he's, he's above the rest. God must love him. God, God, look how God's clothed him better than Solomon himself. Right, so we have the natural tendency to see blessing maybe in, in wealth, you know, to see man, God's God's got their back, right? But but I think this whole example is given for a very specific purpose. It's it's to remind the rich of their end, so that they're not they're not finding their 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 glory in their standing and their money, but they're going to end up just like the rest of humanity, right? On that day when this this scorching wind blows by. They're going to be in the exact same spot that we're going to be in, (laughs) right? Everyone's going to stand bare. Everyone's going to stand bare before the judgment seat of God in the exact same playing field. It didn't matter if our circumstances were horrible and it was hard to believe and it was hard to be faithful and it was hard to, you know, be a Christian. As to somebody who had it made and it seemed easy, we're all going to be held to the same standard. We'll all be held to a perfectly holy, righteous standard. And unless we're in Christ, we're all going to perish the exact same way. We'll all be burnt up. Right? And so I, I try to explain the even playing field that's going to happen on that day, right? Because I don't want us to think that James is in any way teaching that it's bad to be rich. Right? Because he's not teaching that at all. James never tells the, the rich people, hey, give your money away so you can be like the poor people. Right? He never says to do that. The, the, the rich people have a specific calling with their money. There's a purpose that God's given them money. And I think it's this. I think it's so that they will be an exhibition to the world of God's grace. Because the world understands that the, 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 the catch of money. You know, that's what it revolves around. It, it, it sees how, how, what it can do with people and how it can turn them. I mean, that's what people use money for is to turn people. So, I think God gives rich people this money to demonstrate, I mean, this extravagant grace of being able to have money, but love God more. That should be the mindset of the rich. Yes, I've been given just much, but I love God more. And so the way they use their money is how they can demonstrate to the world, wow. You know, because when I see a, a poor person that loves to go to church and loves, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, wow, you know, what else has he got? But the rich man, I mean, that's a work of grace, you know. I mean, I love to see rich people serve the Lord. I love to see rich people give their money. I mean, it's literally like seeing a, a camel walk through the eye of the needle, right? That's what, that's what we're seeing. I mean, that's an amazing grace. And so the teaching for the rich is very straightforward. If you have money, use it for the glory of God. And don't take pride in it as if you're going to have any of it on that day. Right? And Paul has the same teaching. I just have one verse from Paul. And I'll just read it. 1 Timothy 6.17 It says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Right? Same teaching. Glorify God with your money. That's the teaching. Um, I have another note here just because it's one of my favorite texts. I wanted to read it. Um, Or somebody can read it if they want. John, you want to read it for us? Proverbs chapter 30. Can you read Proverbs chapter 30? And I just put this in here because I think we've seen, right, the struggle of the poor, maybe to question God, right? Question God's blessing, question their, their place, question maybe their standing in Christ. It doesn't seem like God's blessing them. We see the struggle of the rich to be lured away by just having much. And, you know, it's very easy. It's very hard to follow the Lord and be faithful when you're rich. So I think I, I love this text in Proverbs. And I think it's fitting just because we recognize the, the trouble of being rich and poor. So, John, would you read, read um, Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9? Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I will not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I will or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Right. Sometimes I wish I never would have prayed that to God, but I did. You know? But I, I see that the, the benefit of that, right? Of not being poor. Right, there's gonna come a there's gonna come a trial, there's gonna come probably a temptation is what he's saying. I'm gonna be tempted to steal. Right, just you, you want to be take, you have the natural inclination to be taken care of, right? And he says, I don't want to be rich because what will happen when I get rich? I'll forget you and say, Who's the Lord? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need the Lord, I'm, I'm set, right? So, I think that's a wise prayer to anybody who's willing to pray it, um, because I think the Lord will, will answer it, He'll keep you if you're willing, right in a state of full dependence on God, mm-hmm. not too little, not too much, you know. But where every day you're you're waiting on the Lord. Um, so thanks, John. So so okay. So having been warned, what he's been doing so far is he's been warning us of many of the trials that come in life. He's been telling them, telling us how to deal with them. And now, it's just another grace, another 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 good thing that God is showing us here. God's going to give us an eschatological glimpse. He's going to give us a glimpse of the end for those who will heed his teachings. Right, so I mean, we've only looked at half a chapter, but he's already telling us what will be the the blessing, what will be the end of those who heed these teachings. In verse 12, James chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, like, as I said, this is a summation pretty much of everything that we looked at so far. The perseverance under trials. And so he says that the, the once he's been approved, so there's a time, a time given to these trials. Right? Like Cassie said, hey, I, I was sick. I wanted God to answer it. You know, why isn't he answering it? Well, right here, I think maybe a glimpse because there's a time you must be approved for, through these trials. Right? And look what he says that he's going to give us. The crown of life. That's the, that's the promise if we'll persevere. Is the crown of life. 
in here just in case I don't have a whole lot of detail on what it's going to look like, right? What the crown of life is going to look like, what, how that ceremony is going to go down on that day. But, I mean, we can only imagine of the glimpses that we have, you know, of the book of Revelation and just the glory that's there and, and just how the saints in heaven are, are falling down and worshiping and just the description of heaven and just, I mean, the glories. We can only imagine, right? I'm just going to read... I'm just going to read a, very, a related text at, from Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. I'll just read it to you. It says this. It says, you can go there if you want. It says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So there's the crown of life again. Right? It's, it's, it's given to those who have suffered here even to death it says be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life and so I just think it's going to be our can you imagine the privilege of, of the Lord giving us rewards I mean I still don't even understand the concept behind that, beside, behind that to tell you the truth um, you know because we know that, that all good that comes from us is because of God Amen. right He's working in us to will and to do, right? So why do we get a reward? Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, we're going to see as we go on. I mean, just the, the giving graciousness of our God is, is unbelievable. It's undescribable, right? So I think that just to have our, our to be heavenly minded is going to benefit us in the struggle. Keep your eye on the prize and the eye of that day where the Lord promises us, right? Here's another, I'll talk about the promises this, this should be added to my list of great promises. The, the, the crown of life, heaven, the presence of God, rewards from God, not judgment, not wrath, but, but rewards, right? And so just, just think about that day as you suffer. Keep your eye on the prize, right? Be, be, be ready to, if he does crown you with that crown, be, be willing to take it off and to lay it down on his feet, knowing that it was him that worked in you, both the will and to do, so that God gets all the glory. All right? Amen.